Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It's nice to see you all. Uh, Very good to be here with Philippians chapter 2, which is where our focus is this morning. Court attention at all cost. Never let yourself get lost in the crowd or buried in oblivion. Stand out. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger, more colorful, more mysterious than the bland and timid masses. I'm reading from a different book. This is called, um, this is not the Bible. This is called uh, The 48 Laws of Power. I can't go over here, can I? Because I'm on this, <laughs> I'm on this microphone. Oops. Um, it's called The 48 Laws of Power. And uh, I heard about this um, from someone last week. And I assumed it was a joke, this, this book, which is about how to gain power and, and uh, assert yourself and be very, very successful. And uh, I was in the local library in Finsbury Park. I typed it into the library catalogue, and it was on the shelf for anyone in Finsbury Park to read. Uh, so he's got 48 laws of how to get ahead in life. That's one of them. Court attention at all costs. Let me just read you a couple more. I couldn't believe this guy's for real. He's uh, <laughs> sold a lot. Uh, law number 20, do not commit to anyone. Do not commit to any side or cause but yourself. By maintaining your independence, you become the master of others, playing people against one another, making them pursue you. Okay. Do do not commit to anyone. So that's law number 20. Let's try law number 28. Enter action with boldness. Timidity is dangerous. Better to enter with boldness. Any mistakes you commit through audacity are easily corrected with more audacity. Everyone admires the bold. He goes on to talk about how you should enter a room if you want to be successful. Okay, I have to tell you this. Uh, He says that a confident person enters the room as big as possible, so you make your body big. And then, ideally, you shout out somebody's name, even if you have no idea who's in the room. Rob! Hello! Hello! Hello, Sarah! Hello! Even if you enter a party, and this is what you're doing, just shouting people's names. He says... Look, if you have no idea who's in there, just make up somebody. Doris, lovely to see you. Hello. Nice to be here. I'm powerful. You know, no one holds me back. I'm powerful. I get ahead in life. Let me just read you one more. I promise we'll get to the Bible. There's a better book. Law 34. Act like a king to be treated like one. By acting regally and confident of your powers, you make yourself seem destined to wear a crown. 
Okay, so the 48 laws of power. I mean, successful guy, international bestseller. That's one way to conduct your life, apparently. He's gone through all of history to collect these laws, you know, everything from Sun Tzu in ancient China all the way through to Napoleon Bonaparte up to the present day. Garnered all these 48 laws of power. That's silly, isn't it? To, to, I mean, most of us would reject that kind of thing. The back cover of the book actually says it's amoral. So uh, you don't have to go along without realizing that. But isn't there a bit of us which thinks, but I do want that kind of confidence about myself. I, I, I would like to be able to have that disposition in my life. Not totally amoral, but to be able to enter a room confidently. The sort of disposition that says, here I am, I'm okay, like, here I am, I'm, I'm a confident person. But then there's a, another way of thinking, which is delineated, put forth here in Philippians chapter 2, which doesn't say, here I am, here I am, as big as possible. It says, there you are. There you are, individual who I can serve. There you are, human being who I can build up. There you are, person who needs me. There you are. It's not here I am, it's there you are. You know, there are countless ways this can play out on there. The, the, the tired worker who gets in at the end of the day comes through the, through the front door with a, a weight on their mind, and yet, instead of saying, here I am and I need you people in my house to know what, what a tough day I've had, is somehow able to say, there you are, people that the Lord has given me in my house. I'm there for you. What sort of day have you had? Or maybe the, the employee who gets into work in the morning and is immediately rushed upon by people who need things from them. And rather than saying, look, here I am, I've got things to do, is, is somehow able to say, there you are. I am, I'm here for you, I'm here to help you. Maybe just the person who nervously enters a crowded room and wonders how they will ever get out of it, really. Well, that for that person who is somehow able to say, there you are, individual, let me serve you. You see what I mean? Rather than here I am, it's there you are. We've been looking at the book of Philippians together in the morning, and we've been seeing how it's a book about joy again and again. We get joy, joy, rejoice. And we've been seeing how that's a joy that's tied to Jesus Christ for the Apostle Paul. It's tied to him. He's the indestructible ocean liner of joy. We talked about it like boats, you know. So there are all these different boats, little boats that I could tether my joy to. But when the storms of life come, that's volatile. If I tether my joy to Jesus Christ, then that's reliable. I want to show you today that Paul has this regard for other people. And by the way, this is a word of explanation. That's not to say he's suddenly given up on Christ and suddenly he's focusing on other people and he's tied to other people. That's not where his joy is. We've seen he's definitely in Christ. But rather, it's a bit like he's tied to Jesus Christ and he just wants to bring everyone else closer to him. My, my joy is in you and your little boat coming close to Jesus Christ because I know that's the best thing for you. So here he, he turns his attention to other people. This is thinking worthy of the gospel. This is by way of introduction. Um, I'm told that when you're learning a language, I'd love to have ever got this far in my life, uh, you, know, you, you know you've made some decent progress when you start to think in that language. Is this true? I'm looking for some sort of nod of affirmation from someone who's learned language. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, 
so you slog through all the vocabulary and the learning. You try and get out, um, you know, interrupted sentences. But um, eventually, I'm told, it's encouraging to get to the stage when you realize your default language in your head is that language. You know, it's no longer your mother tongue. It's that thing. And here, I guess, Paul is addressing thinking. He's, he's saying, can you think Christianese, if you like? Can you think that way? I'll show you. Look, verse 2, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, make my joy complete. That, that's the, the main verb of the Greek sentence, make my joy complete. So that's the, what everything else hangs off. He's the joy he's been talking about. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. There's the mind. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. See, it's directed towards other people. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You see all those references to mind, mind, thinking. He's interested in the way you think. He wants to get inside your head. There'll be no real way for me to tell whether this sermon's been effective today, but inside your head, I'm praying that I'll get hold of your thoughts, that, that Jesus Christ will enter your thoughts and change the way you think so you speak the language of, of Christianity inside your head. We saw last week that there's a sort of military aspect to the way Paul talked in chapter 1. We saw this slide, which, which is about a, a Roman army. Here we are in their tortoise formation, you know, where they're all locked together and it's kind of impenetrable, very hard to get through. And Paul was saying, look, be like that together. And today, it's as if he's saying, in your head, what's going through your head when you're in here? You've got to think in regard to your neighbor. Think Christianly. We know this from Paul's example. You know, he's been in prison. He's in prison when he writes this. And yet, we've seen how he's thinking of his prison guards. We've seen how he's thinking of the church in Philippi, hundreds of miles away. We've seen how he's thinking of others all the time. So this is thinking worthy of the gospel. Thanks, Christian. Which is really just thinking like Jesus. That's, that's where the great glory in this passage lies. In, in the rest of this, the bit that's sort of split up into poetic verse in our Bibles, this is thinking like Jesus. You see verse 5? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the mindset of Christ Jesus. Think like him. What follows in verses 6 to 11 is often thought to be some sort of hymn of the early church. Maybe this is something they, they stood up together and they sang when they had the first house churches around, around the Mediterranean. And you can kind of imagine that, can't you? It might have been penned by Paul. It might have been something pre-existing that he took and he put in here. And it's as if he's saying, come on, you know these words. We sing them every week. What we're going to see just for the next moment or two together is that this is Jesus as an example, not so much as a substitute here. I mean, I... I hope that you know the, the gospel of Christianity, that Jesus Christ shrunk himself down and became a man, lived a perfect life, died in our place so that we could be forgiven. He took, takes the punishment from God that our sins deserves, takes it on himself. He's a substitute. He swaps places with us. That's not actually what this is saying. That's just gloried in elsewhere in the Bible. This is Jesus as our example rather than our substitute. And we have to think like him. It's as if Paul's saying, you know the shape of Jesus' life? That's the shape of your life. And before, before we go any further, can I just point out the privilege of this? Have the mind of Jesus Christ. Get inside Jesus' head. You've got access to Jesus' thoughts. You actually know what is going on in the mind of God Almighty, the way he thinks, how he deals with people. 
Okay, with that in mind, with the, with the privilege heavy on our hearts, let's, uh, let's just look at this. It, it, it's three steps, if you like. Uh, no self-promotion in Jesus' mindset. No limit setting. And no glory hunting. No self-promotion, no limit setting, and no glory hunting. So first of all then, there's no self-promotion in Jesus' mindset. Verses 6 and 7. Have a look at verse 6. Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Do you see the crucial details there? He was in very nature God, verse 6, and yet he was also the very nature of a servant, verse 7. Wow. I mean, you could pay thousands of pounds for like a, a, a theological doctrine course, and you, and you would come up with these two verses. He was in very nature God, and yet he was in very nature a servant, a human. That's why, interestingly, if you're a Christmas carol fan, when we sing... Very God begotten, not created. You know, I always thought that was a strange line. Very God. Why is that? Here you go. Verse 6. Being in very nature God. He was very God. That was his, his divine nature. He is fully God. Don't be any, any doubt about that, okay? But then also you've got to balance that with very man. He was in, the, in human form. You've got to hold those two things together. God and servant. And yet... This is the glory of it, right? There was no self-promotion in Jesus. You need to imagine Jesus' prayers. I found this a helpful thing. Okay, so Jesus, we're often told in the Gospels that he would go off to quiet places and pray. I mean, can you imagine him praying to his father? It'd be lovely to have an, it'd be lovely to have an, I keep doing that. It'd be lovely to have an insight on what he prayed. Okay, so here, let's just imagine Jesus is there praying to his father in a quiet moment and he says, Oh, Father, I mean, these 12 disciples, they don't realize who I am. They just asked me if I could really feed 5,000 people. I invented bread, you know. I made the fishes swim. They don't know who I am. This is so humiliating for me. If only they knew who I was. I don't think he ever prayed like that. I don't get any hint like that from the Gospels. And yet... Hmm. isn't there a bit of us which sometimes wants to pray to God, whether or not we do it explicitly or not, that says, Lord, my family have got no idea who I am, how busy I am, how important I am, how lucky they are to have me. Isn't there a bit of us, just in a trivial way, that walks down the pavement sometimes? You know when you're in a hurry to get somewhere in London and there's someone checking their phone... And they're idling along, and they're taking up the whole pavement, talking to their friend. And I need to get somewhere. Come on, I've got to go somewhere. Don't you know who I am? I'm important. I've got a meeting to be at. Don't you know who I am? I think there's also a a strain of this in um, Christian ministry, where you've worked hard at a Bible study or some some aspect of ministry, and um, people don't show up, or they turn up late. Or they just don't seem to appreciate the hard work you've put in. Don't you know who I am and how hard I've worked at this? Don't you know? I might turn that into a prayer if I'm especially frustrated. Lord, these people don't know who I am. Obviously, I've never thought that. Um, Look, there's no self-promotion in Jesus' life. I think it strikes me that a, a chief example of this in our generation is social media. You know, here I am. 
Here I am, everybody, internet. You all need to pay attention to me. Here I am. Don't you know who I am? I've got stuff to say. I've got photos to tweet. I've got Instagram things you need to see. Here I am. I wonder if a better attitude for social media. I'm not against social media. I think it's a terrific gift of God in some ways. But wouldn't a better attitude be, there you are. There you are, people out there who I can edify. There, there you are, people I can build up in the Lord. There you are, internet, which I can use for a great means of, of helping people. I'm going I'm to tweet or Facebook things which are useful, not just about me, and here I am. Objection. Objection, someone might say. All very well, you know, just one-to-one relationships, friendships, all of that stuff, but my career... What about my career? You know, I c- you can't write a CV and be like, hmm, okay, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not really here for me. But I take it you can be honest on a CV without being, you know, ridiculous, without entering the room and doing the curriculum vitae equivalent of, look at me, everybody, here I am, calling out people's names, you know? You can be honest about your life and what you've done in a way that still says, I want my career to be for other people's benefit. There you are, not here I am. That is the mindset of Jesus Christ. There's no self-promotion. Secondly, there's also no limit setting. Have a look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even Death on a cross. Do you see that? There's no limit setting in Jesus' life. If the first point, no self-promotion, referred to his incarnation, this refers to Jesus' crucifixion. There's just no limits on this guy, what he was willing to do for his father. I mean, death was never meant for a human being, right? You read through the Bible, Genesis 1, there wasn't supposed to be death in the first place. So for a human being to die is bad anyway. But for a human being to die on a cross... I mean, Roman citizens weren't legally allowed to die on a cross, and yet Jesus Christ becomes a man, humbles himself to death, even death on a cross. I can rather liken this to uh, poker. You know, you know, I only know this from movies, really, uh, but you know when there's a game of poker and it's sort of dimly lit, there's a single light bulb over the card table, you've got that green felt on the table. I don't know why that's necessary, but it is. Someone's smoking a cigar and all the, all the smoke's going up to the ceiling light. And someone decides they've got the best hand. And they say, do you know what? I'm all in. That being all in, having all your chips in the center of the table, being everything for God is the mindset of Jesus Christ. Do you know what, Lord? I am, I am all in. This is, this is all for you. There, is no, there are no limits on my life. I once heard an elderly Christian um, cheekily joking about the time he was converted. And uh, he was from a well-to-do background. And, and he said, Lord, I am a Christian now. I'll do anything for you, but don't send me to live in a semi-detached house in Hounslow. <laughs> Nothing against Hounslow. My wife taught in Hounslow for two years. It's a great neighborhood. But you see, there's, 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 he, he was joking. There's no, there are no limits, though, to Jesus' mindset. I'll do anything for you, Lord. I'll, I'll die. I'll die on a cross. So the expectation for the Christian life is more exhaustion than exaltation. Objection. Objection, someone might say. Doesn't that make me, make me a total doormat? 
I mean, doesn't that mean that people will trample on me from a morning, noon, and night the rest of my life? I don't think so. Again, you've got to look at Jesus' life to see this. Jesus was unfailingly kind to everybody, and yet he seemed to have a, a filter, if you see what I mean. So partly, I mean, he had a, he had a life's mission, you see. He was, he was intent on getting somewhere with his life, in his case, death on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. But he had something he was achieving, and he was set on that. But also, he chose 12 disciples. He also had a wider group of 72. You know, there was, there was a, a focus in his ministry that allowed him to say, yeah, you're my focus. I'll do good to everyone if I can, but you're my focus. So I don't think that made him a doormat. On the contrary, I think he had no limit setting, and he was absolutely determined. A friend of mine, her brother was in the army, British army, and um, they, he did a tour of Afghanistan, and um, they came under enemy fire. They got isolated, I guess, this little platoon of eight or so soldiers. And this, this, uh, my friend's brother, he was second in command in the platoon. Anyway, they ended up behind a low wall, which is sort of all battered and bruised. It's been shot at and shelled, and there's just this low wall remaining. And they're coming under fire, and they're ducking down. They're duck- trying to escape the bullets. They're running out of ammunition, and apparently the field telephone doesn't work. So they're down here trying to get this thing to work so they can radio for backup, and it's not working. And the platoon commander says to my friend's brother, I need you to stand up and radio for help because it doesn't seem like we can get signal behind this wall. Now, both of them knew what that meant. There were bullets coming. So my friend's brother is flabbergasted, but you you obey an order, right? So he gets this field telephone, stands up, radios for backup. We need help. Manages to survive, dodging bullets, you know, like that all the time. Anyway, the help comes, the, the helicopter. They get back to the camp at the end of the day, and the, the platoon commander comes up and he says, I'm so sorry. I should never have asked you to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. See how powerful that is when you get to your savior? He has never asked you to do something that he hasn't done himself. He will never ask you to do something that he wouldn't be willing to do for other people. You know, this is why the symbol of a Christian, the Christian faith is a cross. I don't know if there was a PR team in early Christianity, but they could have chosen other stuff. You know, they could have chosen an empty tomb as a symbol of life and hope. They could have chosen a basin full of water and a towel for a symbol of washing people's feet like Jesus does the night before he's died. They could have chosen a fish, which you do sometimes see as a symbol of Christianity. But they, the thing that stuck was a cross. That's why every time I come up Down Street, I, I look at the top of the church and I see the cross there outside. And they've turned it so that you can see it as you come up the street. It's because the cross shows the extent of God's love for you and for me. There are no limits on it. I wonder what the extent of your love for other people is. By the way, if, if you're new to church, not really into this yet, you're just looking in, do you want to get better at loving other people? Do you want to be good at loving the people who are dear to you in your life? If that's you, then watch God. Just watch Jesus Christ. Read the pages of the Bible. He does it better than us. There's no limits on it. So 
So firstly, there's no self-promotion. Secondly, there's no limit setting. And thirdly, there is no glory hunting. No glory hunting, verses 9 to 11. Look with me. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I say there's no glory hunting because this is all after death. You know the moment Jesus died and he sort of shudders out his last, last breath, we're told he breathes his last, they take him down from the cross, they, they put him in a cold tomb on a stone slab and they shut the door and the daylight is sealed out. At that moment, everyone thought, what a waste. What a tragic waste. All of that life. He gave himself for others, but what a waste in the end. But that doesn't take into account an afterlife, does it? You see, the whole point about Jesus' life is that there was was no glory hunting in this life. It it wasn't that he was out to to make a reputation for himself, see what he could get, build a a career and and a following and get accolades. He didn't want any of that. What he trusted in in was a, a glory to come. He trusted that his heavenly father could do that after he died. That's why it's more exhaustion now and exaltation later. So you see verse 9. God exalted him to the highest place. This is partly talking about his resurrection, partly about his ascension to the right hand of God. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, just an ordinary Jewish name, Yeshua in those days, at that name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, human beings, and under the earth, presumably every being in hell, should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Objection. I can't cope with no recognition now. I want somebody in this life to just acknowledge, oh, you're doing a good job. This is good. Keep going. Well done. You're really good at that. And yet, as far as I can recall from Jesus' life, he didn't have anyone saying that. Just two little points to note here. I think there is, he trusted that glory is given in the next life, and it's also most fitting for his name. So there's glory given in the next life, as in uh, he, he trusted that the after death is where God would sort out all of that. After death is the consummation of God's kingdom. After death comes the glorified body. We've been seeing how Roman citizenship was a big deal in Philippi, and indeed the citizenship of heaven has already been granted to us. So really, when you get to heaven after death, all you do is show your passport. You know, I have faith in Jesus Christ. Can I come in, please? It's like showing your passport to get into heaven. But that comes in the next life. Glory is given in the next life. And the second little thing, uh, glory is most fitting for Jesus' name. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be terribly awkward if, if we got to heaven and uh, it was announced that we're all going to glorify the name of Peter Snow? If we got through 30 seconds of it, Uh, I mean, that would be quite pleasing if if people found 30 seconds of stuff to say in front of the whole gathering of heaven. But it would be terribly awkward after that. Everyone would be thinking, how are we going to fill an eternity here? You know? I don't want to be rude, but I imagine it's the same for your name. Glory is most fitting for Jesus Christ's name because we're going to spend all of eternity marveling at the excellencies of his character or the things that he's done. You know, I became a Christian just through the explanation of these four words. 
Verse 11, Jesus Christ is Lord. Fourteen years ago in a little church in Torquay, I heard someone preach a sermon that was the most straightforward thing I'd ever heard. He broke off from what he was saying and he said, look, if you've been going to church for a long time and you've never let Jesus be in charge of your life, why don't you do that today? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. He's in charge. He ought to be in charge of your life, not you. It was like a thunderbolt from heaven. I was pinned to my chair. I thought, how does he know I'm here? That's me. So I had to go and pray with him afterwards. I'd love to pray with you afterwards if that's you. Jesus Christ is Lord, not you. You know, one day everyone will acknowledge this, Christian or not. The, the overlooked one, Jesus Christ, will be the overall one. There was no glory hunting in his life, but there will be glory then. So no self-promotion, no limit setting, no glory hunting. So what? If you've got to this stage and you can still think, so what? Then look, let me give you some ideas. Uh, I'd love you to go away and think, there you are my life is going to be like Jesus Christ, then it's not about, here I am, here I am, world. It's, there you are, individual. Here's a few ideas. Um, maybe church friends. You know, the people God has given you in this church or in your Christian network, it can be tempted sometimes to, to be a bit jealous of what God has given other people, either gifts or the blessings in their life. But I wonder if we might force ourselves, or better, pray to God to give us this attitude Look, Lord, I want to say, there you are, to these people. I want to walk into church and be able to say, there you are. How can I help? Uh, are you a leader of some sort? At home, at, at church, at work, in any sphere of life, are you a leader? Do you see from this passage that the base layer of Christian thought is service to others? Do you see that what is part of what makes Jesus Christ so unutterably great? that he eschewed, he rejected the majesty of heaven and came down. He doesn't want leaders who are in it for themselves. There's church friends, there's leaders. Maybe, maybe this week God is just going to put a stranger in your life and you are going to have an opportunity to say, not here I am, but there you are. I don't know what that's going to be. Maybe on the tube, maybe on the bus, maybe in some random situation. Or maybe particularly, and, and I think this, would, this is what Paul would get particularly excited about. Maybe there's a suffering Christian somewhere who's trying to make a stand for the gospel. Maybe they're in chains for Christ, or they're being persecuted for their faith, or they are trying to live for Jesus, and you get to be the person who says, there you are, I'm standing with you, how can I help? It would bring Paul great joy. It would bring me great joy. If when Jesus Christ returns, he is able to look at the church and rather than people bursting forth from the ranks and saying, here I am, Jesus, here I am, you've come for me, it would bring him great joy and glory if he sees a church that says, here we all are, Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Our Lord Jesus, how we praise you this morning for leading this life, for being the one who did it. You came from higher heights than we've ever known. You went to lower depths than we have ever imagined, and you served us. Lord, this is a, 
a mighty prayer. We need your help with this, but we pray you would transform our lives to be like his. Give us the mind of Christ. Help us to be a united church so that it bring you, might bring you great joy and glory to see the way we spend our lives here on earth. And we trust everything else after death to you. Amen.